Classical Education, a podcast that covers the foundations as well as the philosophical and theoretical ideas of classical learning in a user-friendly and, may I even say, interesting way. I'm your host, Dr. Darlene Gomes from Leading to Wonder, and I'm so glad that you could join me today. Since I say that we will be covering the philosophical and theoretical foundations of classical learning, I should probably define my terms. As Heims and Schellenberg explain it, philosophy is how you see the world, and theory is how you work within it. And so in this podcast, I'm hoping that together we can take a look at the big ideas the philosophy, the theory that goes into classical learning, and understand how to make that practical in a best practices form. So to begin, let's look just at the title of this podcast, The Grammar of Classical Education. Now, most people, when they think of grammar, they think of English grammar you know, subjects, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, sentences, and all of that is true. It is actually, though, the grammar of the English language. If you look at the origin of the term grammar, what you'll find is it refers to the basic building blocks of any subject matter. So, all of those things that we think of with English grammar are the foundational elements upon which we can use the English language. Same thing with the grammar of mathematics would be understanding the theory of numbers, basic functions. Once you understand those foundational elements, you then build on and learn math. The grammar of art, learning color theory, color names, all of those foundational elements are necessary before you can actually advance in any subject area. And so, the grammar of classical education is going to be looking at those foundational elements that go into a building of best practices in the actual practical classroom teaching. So in this podcast, as we're looking at the foundational elements, we will be looking at the philosophy and the theory of those, and then looking at how they actually live out in a classroom in 2024. The first book we'll be looking at together is probably one of the most solid with the basic foundations of classical education, and that is The Seven Laws of Teaching by John Milton Gregory. 
As I had mentioned in the first podcast, this book is available online as a free PDF, and I encourage you to pick up a copy or download it because you'll be able to then follow along with us. If you've read ahead for our podcast, that's great. If you have it as a reference book for later, that will be great too. This week, what I really want to look at is the foreword and introduction, and then next week we'll actually get into the meat of the first law. As it was helpful to understand a bit about where I was coming from to better understand the podcast, the same can be said for understanding where John Milton Gregory's background and the background of the book to understand where he's coming from. John Milton Gregory was born in 1822 in New York, and at the age of 17, he became a teacher. Now, that is something that is very hard for us to wrap our brain around in the year 2024, but back in 1839, if a young person showed themselves to be a diligent student, they were often very much encouraged to step into the role of a teacher. In 1841, two years later, he made a career change into studying law, where he also then practiced for two years. Now, at that point, he's been a teacher, he studied law, he practiced law, and he became extremely disenchanted with his career choices. Now, we aren't 100% sure, but there's a good possibility because he was a Christian. As a believer, he wanted to do something that would have more of an impact in that way. So he became a Baptist clergyman. But by the age of 30, in 1852, he found himself back in education as the superintendent of a classical school in Detroit, Michigan. Shout out to my own hometown. Working with the State Teachers Association, he began writing for the Michigan Journal of Education, and by the age of 36, he was elected as the State Superintendent of Public Instruction. He was elected that time and then two more additional times. Now, it's really important to understand that Gregory did not focus merely on the methods of educating children, but on the philosophy that guided those methods. And I think it's really important here that, that we take an understanding and a step back to realize that there is a difference between method and philosophy, because that is the difference we face in all of education today. The method is how we do things, how we teach math, how we teach reading, how we approach technology, and how we approach student expectations. The philosophy is the set of beliefs 
that guide our methods. So what we believe dictates how we teach math. What we believe dictates how we teach reading. What we believe guides our approach to technology. And what we believe guides how we handle student expectations. So understanding that Gregory was concerned not just with the how, but the why we do what we do in the classroom and the what we believe that guides that why will help us to better understand where he was going with his seven laws. In 1864, he moved from Michigan State Superintendent to the president of Kalamazoo College, and by 1867, he moved to the leadership of the University of Illinois, where he remained until 1880. With all of the upper-level education, it is very easy to assume that the seven laws of teaching were written for professional teachers on the college level. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The Seven Laws of Teaching were published in 1884 and were written for Sunday school teachers with the desire of helping them best communicate God's Word to their students. So, that means it was for the everyman kind of teacher. Not the pros, not the professors, but the Joe or Josephine average teacher who just wanted to communicate the best they could truth to their students. There is a whole section in the book about how it was originally republished in 1917, but that republished effort took out all of the references to God, and when it was republished by Logo School Board of Moscow, Idaho in 1983, it was done so without the realization that there had been changes to the original. In 2002, they were able to republish the Seven Laws of Teaching based on the original 1884 work of John Milton Gregory. Now, seeing how this 1884 book aligns with best practices of classical education, makes the work itself even more powerful. First of all, Dr. Gregory presents a consistent, timeless view of teaching. He believed that there was a clear right and a clear wrong, that teaching should be done in a systematic format, and that teaching is only dull when the teacher is dull. Second of all, he, it was presented with the understanding the, of the natural inclinations of students' learning. Now, 
For those of you in classical education or with a little familiarity will understand this, but just as a brief summary for everyone else, basically classical learning is formatted around the learning levels of students based on their natural inclinations. We've got the grammar level, which is kindergarten through sixth grade. We've got the logic level, which is seventh and eighth grade. And we've got the rhetoric level, which is ninth through twelfth grade. Now, these lines aren't like firmly written in stone. There is flexibility within them. But when you understand that the younger students are really very much like sponges, they can take in so much information. That's what the grammar level focuses on, is getting in that information through chants and jingles and songs. And I had a second grade class who could list all of the presidents and the years that they were elected because of a song. And when it came to see them in sixth grade, trying to remember, well, who was president during this event, they would go through to that song four years after they originally learned it. So that's what we mean by the grammar level, that, that learning of the facts. In the logic level, that seventh and eighth grade, where they do like to argue and express their opinions, that group learns how to logically think about the facts that they were given and the facts that they have learned. So they actually learn logical fallacies and how to construct their arguments. It's pretty daunting to have a discussion with a classically trained 7th and 8th grader. Now, as they move into the final level, which is the rhetoric level on the 7th through 12th grade, what they're doing is they are learning how to communicate effectively the ideas that they have logically established based on the facts that they have learned. So it is very much a progress. Now, again, those of you with a classical background, that's common practice. But I hope for those of you who aren't, that really does just tell you a little bit about the classical model as a whole. So John Milton Gregory did work with those natural inclinations Later, Dorothy Sayers would expand on that more with her book, The Lost Tools of Learning, which we will look at down the road a ways. So that is another strong element that we see with the seven laws of learning. The third thing is, is John Milton Gregory realizes the value and importance of systematic learning that we have to connect the old to the new. We have to connect what they do know to what they don't know. 
And this is done a lot through repetition and review within the class and even within overall education. So they will circle back around to different history time periods and circle back around to different scientific topics. So with that understanding of the systematic learning, that is also a core tenant of classical education. And finally, what he does is he lays out standards for effective teaching. Now, he does not do this in a non-specific, these are kind of good ideas that you should maybe consider doing, but he states them as clearly established targets that a teacher should aim for. I stand before you saying they are not checklist, get them once, you'll have them forever. They are something that causes constant yearning and working toward. But that's what teaching is, is constantly being a learner and constant improvement. So we need to understand and approach this book with the realization that it is setting an extremely high bar for teachers. We'll be working hard to even come close to following the seven laws within this book, but we need to do the hard things. Mastery doesn't come overnight. We want our students to do the hard things, to push through difficulty. And that's what I'm asking you to do in this podcast. And that's what John Milton Gregory is presenting before us. Mastery doesn't come overnight, but daily aiming for best practices, things that are found in the seven laws, can make a lasting impact on our students. So let's get ready to do the hard things and lead ourselves to wonder as we lead our students as well. So whether you are all in with classical ed or you're just kind of curious or even you just want to be a better teacher, I hope you'll stick around and join us for this next podcast. To get the latest episode, as well as a fun little teacher's newsletter, complete with a couple of classroom freebies, please sign up for the Leading to Wonder newsletter. Or you can subscribe to the podcast directly on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you listen. To learn more about me and Leading to Wonder, you can visit my website at leadingtowonder.com. No spaces. And finally, to reach out to me directly with questions or comments or even for information regarding in-house or virtual teacher training workshops, feel free to email me at darlene at leadingtowonder.com.
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. Again, thank you so much for joining me. Have an amazing week. And remember, as E.B. White said, always be on the lookout for the presence of wonder.